informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it and for letting us be part of your day. We hope it's a good day for you, a safe one. Coming up on our program, we're going to cover a number of topics today. We're going to talk with the CEO of the National Pork Producers Council, Pork Industry, asking USDA's Federal Crop Insurance Corporation to implement enhancements to the Livestock Risk Protection Insurance Program. We'll get into the details on that and why the pork industry feels that needs to be done. Also coming up, we'll hear from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about the extension of the hours of service rule. And also today, a bit of a debate, if you will, point-counterpoint on whether or not ethanol should be in the next coronavirus assistance package. Now, we wait to see if uh, Congress is going to get anything worked out on that or not. But a big question has been, will ethanol be included this time or not? The ethanol industry making its case that it should be. We'll hear from Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. But some are saying not so fast. Maybe ethanol should not be in that package. And with that view will be Joe Glauber, former USDA chief economist. They will have a point-counterpoint coming up later on in today's program. But first, we're going to start things off with the uh, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, Chandler Gould, joins us. We've talked a lot about uh, CFAP, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. And yesterday we had FSA Administrator Richard Fordyce on talking about the expansion of more commodities being made eligible and also an extension of the deadline for signing up. Chandler, thank you for joining us. I'm looking here at this quite an extensive list of commodities that are now eligible for CFAP. Um, some of them, quite frankly, I'd never even heard of. Uh, but uh, as I go through this list, I'm not seeing any more wheat varieties uh, being listed in there. Any more wheat, and I know you've been trying to get more wheat into the CFAP program. Uh, how frustrated are you about this? Well, uh, Mike, thank you, first of all, for inviting me onto your show. And, of course, uh, on behalf of all of the wheat growers in the U.S., we were very disappointed to yet again uh, be left out of the CFAP program. Uh, we have continued to communicate directly with the USDA on the continued economic downturn that we have seen in the wheat industry, not only due to trade disruptions, but of course with uh, coronavirus and supply chain and going through everything else that all of those other commodities that continue to receive this supplemental program uh, qualify for. And again, we just go back to had the USDA not used the futures price between April 6th and April 9th, uh, almost all wheat classes uh, should have qualified for this program. And so, um, again, it was disappointing to see uh, some of these new commodities being added. Like you, I didn't even know we grew t- uh, term here in the United States. I know what it is, but I didn't realize that they uh, were eligible for a CFAT program. And what also is confusing us a little more is that things like aquaculture were added, which don't, which don't even have a futures price. So, so the USDA has set a precedent that they're even willing to move away from the original structure of the Chicago Board future price for determining eligibility, and we're just not sure why wheat continues to be left out of that program. You have some types of wheat in, but not others. And I, I, I heard, I've heard from a wheat grower expressing frustration about the. Uh, unable to get the assistance that's needed as they go through a difficult time. 
Most definitely. You know, I, I was just speaking with uh, my Minnesota growers and my Washington growers yesterday, and, and both of those states are about 55% done harvesting. Of course, once they finish, you know, the, the wheat harvest in the United States will be done. And when we were discussing this yesterday with my executive committee, the way CFAP was set up, not only did it put a disadvantage between commodities, whether it be corn, soy, wheat, or, or other commodities, but you also put it at a geographical uh, difference. Because as you know, down in the south, like in Texas, where I'm from, in Oklahoma, we don't do a lot of on-farm storage. So most of my wheat growers there had already either forward contracted or sold their wheat, and we're working on their 2020 crops, which we continue to see low prices. And so what we've decided to do at NOG, uh, we do appreciate that the, that the USDA has continued to, to respond to us, but we're going to turn our attention away from CFAT for now. <laughs> we, I, you know, in layman's terms, I think we've beaten that horse to death. It's clear they're not going to add wheat. And so we're going to turn our focus to the 2020 crop and the prices that our, our growers are experiencing right now. In what way? How are you, what are you going to do next to try to get help? Well, we've already started to go up to Congress. Um, you know, we've got a definite champion with Congressman Frank Lucas. Uh, as they continue to work on this next package that comes through, uh, we're asking that there be specific language in there uh, that all classes of wheat are eligible as we move through whatever parameters they put around those programs. And so really we're waiting for the, for the Congress to come back. But last time we lobbied the USDA directly, uh, this time we're just going to, you know, I guess I'm giving my gameplay away. We're going to turn the heat up a little bit, and NOG is going to lobby the USDA, and we're going to get our allies on Capitol Hill to help us. So when you look at w the classes of wheat that were allowed in versus the ones that aren't, what was the difference there? So Durham uh, wheat, which is uh, predominantly made for pasta, um, you grow, is grown predominantly in Arizona and a lot in North Dakota, and then soft red winter. So that uh, wheat was included. Uh, those two wheat classes combined only cover about 30% of the wheat grown in the United States. So what was left out, uh, the two biggest classes, uh, hard red winter, which is basically you know the I-35 corridor from Texas all the way up to Minnesota and out west. And of course, soft white was left out. And so that's the Pacific Northwest. When you add up the four classes that were left out, 70% of the producers did not qualify for the program. But if you go back and would look at their county prices and what they were getting at the elevator during that same time frame, you can definitely see that there was over a 5% drop across all six classes of wheat. And that's what we kept trying to explain to the USDA that the Chicago board is not an accurate measurement of what farmers are receiving uh, when they go to sell their, their uh, wheat uh, at the county or at the elevator or whatever their first end point would be. So you give up on CFAP basically and turn your attention to the stalemated talks in Congress right now on the next coronavirus package. That's you know, I, I, th I think that's our best strategy. Um, you know, we and I, I do still want to call out, you know, Undersecretary Northey has talked to, uh, to my organization and to my officers. Uh, we've had good correspondence back and forth. But uh, when you even read through the regulation that came out again with, when they expanded it the, uh, just, just the other day, some of the reasoning behind why they didn't include wheat uh, still 
does not even um, acknowledge the economic information that we sent showing that there has been a 12 to 14 percent de uh, decrease in the price of wheat from January through June. And so they continue just to focus on that very narrow window, and we're hoping to have better luck in the next uh, release package. All right, Chandler, thank you for being with us. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Chandler Gould, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers. Up next, the CEO of the National Pork Producers Council. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. We have uh, discussed quite a bit the challenges facing the uh, pork industry during this pandemic. Now the National Pork Producers Council and several state pork producer associations have asked USDA's Federal Crop Insurance Corporation to implement enhancements to the Livestock Risk Protection Insurance Program. And here to discuss that move and how that would help is Neil Dirk, CEO of the National Pork Producers Council. Neil, good to talk with you again. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me on. And um, as you said earlier, I know you've been covering the trials and tribulations of the pork industry. We really appreciate that because um, Lord knows we have some. How would this uh, move to uh, enhance the Livestock Risk Protection Insurance Program, how would that help? Well, Mike, as it goes, as you just said, the, the challenges we're having um, the livestock risk protection has existed for many years. The issue, and it's similar for those crop farmers in the in the audience, is it would be similar to federal crop insurance. But the way it was structured um, has some elements to it that just doesn't make it an attractive option for pork producers to manage risk. And with these changes, <clears throat> it would in it would basically make some changes that would make it more practical for a pork producer to be able to buy this this protection um, through a, an, an agent through an and what's called an AIP agricultural insurance provider and um, and meet their operations more. Now they have recently made some changes uh, in the past. They required the premium up front of the of the uh, contract. Um, they've already changed this to take the premium at the end of the contract. But we, the, the three changes we're really uh, hopeful for is, one, they would move the coverage period from 26 weeks of production to, to 52 weeks. And, of course, in our business, it takes a year from the time, a little over, a little under a year from the time you make the decision to have sows bred till you have hogs going to market. So that that time frame would help um, significantly. Um, another issue is is that they've had pretty low limits on the number of head that you could cover, um, and we're hoping they would expand that greatly or maybe even not have a, a head limit, uh, a number of animals covered. And then uh, finally, um, we're asking them to support the providers um, to help make the premiums more affordable for producers. And as you said, um, MPPC is supporting this, as well as 26 of our state organizations have signed on. Any response so far? How, how long uh, would this perhaps take 
to make those changes? Could they do it uh, well, immediately or quickly, my, or would that my, be a lengthy my, process? My understanding is that the board of the FCIC has the authority to make these changes. They meet regularly, and um, there are AIPs, these uh, providers, that have uh, are taking this uh, proposal. And the uh, the next meeting of the board is yet this month, to my understanding, and we're hoping, um, if not at their next meeting, very shortly thereafter, they'd be able to to put these into place because, you know, our producers are expecting to, you know, after two years of trade retaliation and impacts on their bottom line, our our hope was, and our, it looked like we were going to have a have a profitable year until a thing called COVID nineteen hit, and we all know all the different kinds of um, uh, trials and tribulations that <clears throat> our industry, together with a lot of the rest of agriculture, faced. And this, again, becomes another tool a producer can manage risk on for unforeseen circumstances. And if if we would have had this and producers taking taking advantage of it earlier this year, it would have um, softened, if not kind of um, moved away, some of the impacts that our producers have seen. We're talking with Neil Dirk, CEO of the National Pork Producers Council. So, Neil, you're seeking this move, and I know you're also watching closely uh, the debate in Congress over the next COVID assistance package. Yeah, that's true. And I, as I got on the line, I, I didn't even need to know who it was. I could under I heard Chandler Gould's voice, and and all of it, um, all of the ag groups are working diligently. We've we've been uh, really, really pushing. Uh, we were very happy to see that. When the when the uh, House passed the Heroes Act, uh, there were elements in the Heroes Act that we were very supportive of, related to um, compensation for those producers who had to euthanize animals, or for those producers who just gave animals away into the chain um, so they could avoid animal welfare issues on their farms, and um, and that's why we're we're watching this uh, this discussion very closely between the Senate and the House uh, and the White House about the next, we call it CARES 2 or COVID-4, depending on what number you want to use, a package. And at this juncture, the relief package is what it's called, is, um, is uh, on the table in the Senate. And our understanding, um, and part of that covers euthanization costs, disposal costs, things in this order for those producers had to encounter that and also for donations of animals. But uh, there's also uh, uh, some additional things like with our veterinary laboratories, and a lot of people don't realize this. Our veterinary laboratories in this country have been put to work as it relates to helping their state hygienic labs run COVID tests, things in this order, because in livestock agriculture, we're used to population management uh, for health issues. And what happens <clears throat> is, is that now I know in several states you've had vet labs that have shared resources with their state hygienic labs. In some cases, the vet labs are actually running the humid COVID tests because in our industry, our throughput for testing is so much greater than uh, what existed for humans. So there's some funding there to support the, the veterinary laboratories also. And another element that's on the table is some help with uh, mental health counseling because we all understand the stress that that uh, all farmers have been under during this time, and um, and that's an element that that, that would be <clears throat> supportive. But again, that's the Relief Act. We're hoping 
that we're going to see something happen with this log jam. The discussion, to my understanding, or up to this point, has not been on the support of agriculture. It has also it has been on the um, on bigger issues, things about additional funds for unemployment, et cetera, et cetera. So our hope is, is that if that log jam can clear, that we'll see support um, to get the the both the livestock provisions through the Relief Act, um, which also includes some changes to the uh, Commodity Credit Corporation to allow USDA to respond in the event of another um, non-disease-related catastrophe for the livestock industry, and also funding uh, for direct payments. And I think all of agriculture is united on that uh, to get to get more relief to producers to um, to be able to go forward and, and continue to operate. And finally, Neil, as we wait to see what happens in Congress, uh, producers, as you talk with them, uh, do they feel like they, they're just running out of options? I mean, we know they've uh, idled uh, animals. They've uh, had to euthanize animals. Uh, I mean, and still there's a huge backup of hogs. Uh, are they? Do they feel like they're kind of running out of options? Well, the, the, there's been a feel that, boy, I tell you what, earlier in the summer people felt that way. Um, and that's why there were animals euthanized, animals given away, et cetera. Um, during the summer, as you know, biologically is when we have the fewest number of animals go to market. Um, and we were able to get, I think the last numbers I saw, we were, were able to get back to 95% capacity in our packing processing, um, which the combination of fewer animals biologically going through the, the chain has allowed producers to, to catch up to some degree. The problem is, our, and look, the last thing a producer wants to do is euthanize something that they spent so much time and effort um, growing. Um, and what's happened is it appears the heavier hogs that uh, that should have been harvested back in the beginning, or like in April and May, they have been harvested. The problem is people change their new their nutrition rations to fundamentally stop the growth of animals, just keep them on maintenance diets. What that did was it's like a it's like a golf ball going through a garden hose. It just backed up the number of animals further. And now as we come into our fall, which is traditionally our heaviest marketing time, um, people are on edge about what does this hold yeah. as it relates to. We've got a lot of animals to go. Um, some are backed up. Uh, people are trying to avoid animal welfare issues on the farm. And um, will we be able to get them through in an orderly fashion? Right. And as you know, Mike, our, our uh, values have not been great. So uh, people are concerned. Indeed. Challenging times. We'll see what happens in Congress with the next package. Neil, thanks for the update. Good to talk with you again. Thanks, Mike. We appreciate what you do. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Neil Dirk, CEO of the National Pork Producers Council. Up next, a debate over whether ethanol should be covered in the next coronavirus package. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. So as we wait to see if Congress can pass another coronavirus assistance package as the debate continues on what should or should not be in it. On the ag side, um, the numbers kind of been agreed to around that $20 billion figure. 
But there are some questions within that as far as how the money would go out. Uh, does USDA have oversight over that completely, or is there more uh, direction, uh, more uh, rules, uh, guidelines for them on how it should go out? Part of the debate is whether or not ethanol should this time be included in the uh, package, and whether or not if it's left up to USDA, would USDA include ethanol in uh, that money? We're going to have some a point-counterpoint discussion now couple of different views on this. Jeff Cooper is with us, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Jeff has been making a strong case for the inclusion of ethanol. Jeff, good to have you back with us. Thanks, Mike. Glad to also be here. with us, also with us with a, a different view is Joe Glauber, former USDA chief economist and senior research fellow for the International Food Policy Research Institute. Joe, good to have you back with us again. Are you there, Joe? Well, I hope we have Joe with us. We thought we did. So we'll we'll try to get him back on the line here because we want to have uh, uh, both on to talk about uh, this discussion about the ethyl industry. So, Jeff, let me go ahead and start with you. Uh, we've had you on before. You've explained it. But I want you to explain it again why you feel what is the case for ethanol to be included in the next COVID assistance package? Well, sure, Mike. I'm, I'm happy to do that. I mean, obviously, COVID-19 has been devastating for the entire U.S. economy. It's been devastating for the entire agriculture sector. But few sectors of the economy have been hit quite as hard as the ethanol uh, industry. Uh, we saw demand for ethanol and our co-products just collapse by about 50 percent uh, during the height of, of the COVID-19 pandemic and the effects that it was having on, on gasoline demand and, and driving, you know, vehicle miles traveled. So, uh, you know, the, the impact has just been uh, absolutely devastating for the industry. It's having lasting impacts. Uh, at one point, we had, uh, you know, far more than, than half of the industry shut down. Uh, we experienced uh, layoffs, furloughs, uh, and it's, you know, the recovery has been, uh, encouraging, uh, but it's going to take uh, you know a, a long time to climb out of this hole that COVID-19 put us in. The industry has already seen uh, you know around three and a half billion dollars in lost sales revenues, uh, and you know we look around and we see the, the Congress and the administration uh, lending a helping hand to virtually every other uh, segment of, of of the ag sector. Uh, we see all sorts of assistance being provided to our competitors in, in the petroleum sector. Uh, and so just as a matter of fairness, uh, we're asking Congress and the administration to extend that same helping hand uh, to the ethanol industry. You know, we got a number of producers just kind of hanging on by their fingernails, um, hoping and, and, and crossing our fingers that uh, a phase four stimulus bill gets done somehow uh, and provides some direct assistance to ethanol producers. All right, let's turn now to Joe Glauber, former USDA chief economist. Joe, why do you question whether or not ethanol should be included in the next package? Well, well, thanks. And first of all, thanks, Mike, for inviting me in. And sorry for the problems earlier. Um, I agree totally with what Jeff is saying about the impact on the industry and ethanol consumption and ethanol production. There's no question that's down. I think that's really had a huge impact on corn use. We saw that with the drop in corn prices. Um, and as Jeff mentioned, I think the, the good news is, is fuel use is rebounding and hopefully we'll be back close to 2019 levels next year. 
I think USDA has properly focused compensation on corn producers. Um, that uh, just talking about gross revenues, but if you net out the costs, uh, that's a lot less uh, uh, impact on on the ethanol industry. Where the in, where the, the big part of the impact has been has been on corn producers, and there, you know, we've seen about 1.2, 1.3 billion paid out to date through CPAP. Um, and my, my strong feeling is is that the Commodity Credit Corporation Charter Act shouldn't be used to bail out downstream industries. I think if you do it for ethanol. Why not cotton mills? Why not apparel manufacturers? Why not grain handlers who certainly saw the grain on hand lose value? I think CCC programs should be aimed at producers, and that's why I think you know the using it to provide compensation for corn producers and others has been the proper thing. The other thing is that we have a problem. The, the problem is consumption, right? I mean, it, it's fuel use. If you incentivize ethanol production, it's largely going to go into stocks, which with the way the RFS works, it means that those supplies will just compete with future production. And I don't think that's what we need. I think, I think frankly, what the ethanol industry has been doing, which is right, is focusing on the small refinery exemption issue. That's uh, where I think the, the real issues are. If you want to increase demand for ethanol, and that's really what we're talking about, uh, that will lead to increased corn use. Jeff, your your response to that? Well, I would start by saying we are absolutely focused on uh, overturning small refinery exemptions and getting EPA to enforce the renewable fuel standard as it was intended. Uh, but we're not having a whole lot of luck there and not getting much of an, of an assist from the administration. We have actually sued uh, EPA and won, and yet uh, six months after that court decision came down, uh, you know, we hear EPA is reviewing another 80 small refinery exemptions. So uh, we're not pinning our hopes on hoping that EPA just uh, turns around and does the right thing on, on SREs. Um, on the, the Commodity Credit Corporation, you know, I, we've looked at the CCC Charter Act and, and, and the you know, express purpose of the CCC is to stabilize, support, and protect farm income and prices and maintain balanced and adequate supplies of ag commodities. Uh, corn is inextricably linked to ethanol, and that's something Dr. Glauber himself has argued and, and written about in the past. So providing aid to the ethanol industry would absolutely help stabilize, support, and protect farm income by ensuring that a large market, you know, the largest market for, for corn remains open. And there are several examples from the past where the CCC has been used to support downstream processors, even those cotton ginners that uh, Dr. Glauber mentioned, uh, and even distributors of, of commodities and their derivative products. Uh, we had the CCC Bioenergy Program a, a decade or more ago that paid ethanol and biodiesel producers directly uh, based on their purchases of, of ag commodities. We, we had the Biofuels Infrastructure Partnership where, where CCC was used to actually pay fuel retailers uh, to help them install infrastructure. So. Um, I just think it's not accurate to say that there's no precedent for using CCC in the way that we are asking USDA to use it. Joe, any response to that? Yeah, I, I would say that I, I, I didn't say there was no precedent. I just say that I think it's the improper use of, of CCC. I think it should be focused on producers. I mean, you're talking about uh, absolutely ethanol has an impact on corn prices. And when it's not there, corn prices have fallen. And what did USDA do? They paid corn producers. They, they compensated them directly 
for uh, prizes. I think that the talking about going back and then giving money to the ethanol industry, my problem is, is all it does is stimulate production. You don't need more production right now. The market is saying we can only absorb this much because of the, uh, how much uh, driving is being done right now. That will come back. And I think that's really well, important. Well, but and but no when question. it comes back, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, Dr. Glauber, when it comes back, when that demand comes back, we need the ethanol industry to be in a position. We need the, these producers to be solvent uh, and in a position where they can start grinding more corn and producing more ethanol and, and meeting that demand. Um, so we need some way of, of tidying well, so, the industry so where, over and getting the, through this rough patch. Where are current production levels right now? They're about 10% below where they were last year. You know, on the weekly totals, they're coming back. I mean, the the fuel use is coming back and is supposed, you know, should be coming back for a quarter and next year. And and I again, don't get me wrong. I see. I mean, I understand it from your industry point of view, where this is has uh, cut into profits and caused uh, plants to shut down. Why like unprofitability has in past years. But I just don't think this is the role of the federal government, or at least the role of the CCC, to be involved with helping the downstream industry. Jeff, uh, well, real quick here. Go ahead. Final comment. Well, I, I was just going to say, I mean, we, we obviously, I, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Glauber, always have, but we strongly disagree on this one. We, we do think um, because of that uh, inextricable link between corn and ethanol, it absolutely makes sense to help support the ethanol industry. That, by extension, helps uh, you know farm income and helps the corn farmer uh, by by keeping these this very important processing industry uh, solvent and and open and keeping that market uh, growing. Yes, we are seeing some recovery in the fuel market, but we're still you know 12, 15 percent below year ago levels. We are expecting to produce 16 plus billion gallons of ethanol this year before COVID. We're not going to come anywhere close to that. We'll be 13.5 billion gallons if we're lucky, not to mention the impact on, on co-products. So this is an industry that definitely needs some help, uh, deserves some help, just as a matter of fairness, uh, and we're going to continue advocating for that. And we wait to see what Congress decides. I want to thank you both for being with us and sharing your perspectives. Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, former USDA Chief Economist Joe Glauber. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Mike. All right. Up next, we talk with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about the extension of the hours of service rule. That's next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, the U.S. Department of Transportation Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration has announced a 30-day extension to the hours of service exemption for livestock and feed haulers. Here to talk about it is Allison Rivera, National Cattlemen's Beef Association Executive Director of Government Affairs. Allison, thanks for joining us. I know you're happy with this uh, extension. Why is it uh, so important? 
You know, I think the key word right now for our haulers uh, is that flexibility piece, and we continue to push FMCSA for the need for flexibility in this space, even more so now than ever. We're trying to make sure that those grocery store shelves stay stocked and that the cattle can move where they need to go to get processed. Now, this is an extension, but it's not a permanent solution. You're still working on that. Yes, sir. We continue to work through the infrastructure package, whatever that looks like moving through Congress. But right now, we will take every 30 day to 30 days that we can get. We continue to talk to FMCSA. They continue to call us and see uh, if there is uh, still a backlog out there uh, trying to move the cattle to the processing uh, facilities. So we continue to tell them that the need is there for an extension. They can only grant the emergency extension every 30 days. So Every 25 days or so, they give us a call and they want to know how things are going. It's important to them that the grocery store shelves stay stocked for consumers. What is the uh, permanent solution that you're seeking? What specifically would you like to see in place? Absolutely. So we continue to work towards flexibility for livestock callers. So we continue to take that front-end 150 air mile exemption. Uh, we are looking to add that to the destination of hauls. We feel like giving some flexibility to haulers at the end of their trip uh, gives more time for offloading, more time if there's, you know, uh, an extra 15, 20 miles to get to where the driver needs to go. Um, these are the kind of things that we've been continuing to have conversations with FMCSA on. We continue to fight for an ELD delay because the devices simply don't work for our haulers because they're they're far too prescriptive and they don't give that flexibility that's needed when hauling live animals. We really hope that we can get some type of highway bill passed this Congress. If we don't, you know, we're going to work really hard to get this language into a highway bill, and if that means next Congress, then that's what we're going to look towards. What would the opposition be to that? You know, I think the opposition is, is just um, the fact that the, the drivers are, are on the road, you know, more, but we have some very long hauls in this country. We have cattle in California and Florida that, you know, have to make it all the way to the Midwest, and those are certainly not short hauls. But the beauty is that we have a very strong safety record. We continue to point to that safety record. Um, at the end of the day, the hours of service, the way they're currently set, um, those who don't want to grant us any more flexibility feel like that's enough drive time. And that might be enough time for those hauling box goods that can stop and pull over at a rest stop. But when you've got a load of cattle, you can't just pull over anywhere and rest for 10 straight hours. Could these 30-day extensions actually help get the uh, changes made that you want made? I mean, you can look back and say, look, we've had these in place now for a while, and it's worked, so that ought to maybe help your cause? I mean, it's certainly something that we continue to look to to point to, especially as our drivers are doing it safely right now. Um, I think, again, the, the safety record sh is, should be enough for us to stand on. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, there are still, unfortunately, accidents on the road. And so while they may not be livestock haulers, people do tend to point towards those. Um, but right now, you know, the good news is across the country that, Drivers are, uh, truck drivers are moving goods and they're doing it very safely. Uh, and right now they are a critical part of, of getting food on the shelves. It would seem flexibility is the key word here. You need that flexibility in this rule. Absolutely. So we're, we're happy for the 30 days, uh, every 30 days that we're receiving. But 
we know that at some point um, this is an emergency declaration, so at some point uh, FMCSA will will probably uh, stop the the, uh, the continuation of this declaration, and you know we're going to continue to get as as much time as we can uh, to take care of the backlog that we still have, but. Um, we're going to continue to look forward and, and look at that back end 150 as well. This pandemic, uh, certainly this issue was an issue before the pandemic, but this pandemic has really uh, brought it to the forefront. I think it just shows how um, our our haulers are part of the critical infrastructure in this country. Uh, when there is no beef on the shelves, people certainly are, are not satisfied consumers and they don't have what they need for their families. So I think that this has shown the American public how important our livestock callers are. Um, and an important piece of that is also those who are getting to feed to the animals. So um, this, this is why we continue to stress to FMCSA the need for overall flexibility because at the end of the day, it's about keeping those shelves stocked. So you're hopeful this will get resolved this year, but uh, it the way things work in Washington, it may go on into next year, right? It could, and that's why we continue to fight for the ELD delay, because at the end of the day, we're going to continue to ask to be exempted from the electronic logging devices until we can find flexibility through other legislative uh, means. All right. So uh, a temporary fix to the situation, which I know you're happy with now, but uh, looking for that permanent uh, solution to this issue, and hopefully that will be coming soon. Allison, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Allison Rivera, Executive Director, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, about the extension of the hours of service rule and the ongoing effort to get more flexibility in that rule. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. I want to thank all of our guests. Uh, interesting show, uh, some big topics today. Chandler Gould, CEO of the National Association of Wheat Growers, uh, saying they're disappointed, the wheat industry disappointed. More wheat classes aren't included in CFAP. They're moving on and focusing now on this next assistance package uh, in Congress. Uh, Neil Dirk, CEO of the National Pork Producers Council, and the ongoing efforts to get some more assistance for the pork industry. And very interesting discussion, point-counterpoint from Jeff Cooper with the Renewable Fuels Association and Joe Glauber, former USDA chief economist, on whether ethanol should be in that next COVID assistance package. Hey, coming up tomorrow, we'll get more on the damage uh, from this week's storms and some reaction and analysis of the uh, latest USDA numbers. Hope you'll join us right here on AOA. AOA.